let's, uh, let's just turn to God's Word and let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to share from your Word. As Louise has already said, I ask, Lord, that there would be nothing of myself but what you want us to hear, we would hear. Lord, what a privilege it is to open your precious Word and to learn from it and to, by your Holy Spirit, grow in our souls or come to know the Lord Jesus for the first time. I pray that that may be the case today. So bless us as we are together for this short time. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's really a privilege to be able to celebrate communion before we come to God's Word. It sets our hearts, I think, to be in warmth as we consider the Savior and what God has done for us. God so loved the world. And we can see that God is merciful in the way that he acts towards us. We saw that John's gospel gives that clear outline of God's love for us, so fully expressed in Jesus. And it's at this time of the year that we celebrate that gift of the birth of Jesus, the Advent, Emmanuel. In Luke's gospel, chapter 1, after the angel Gabriel came to share that message to Mary, that she was to become pregnant and to carry a baby that was to be called Jesus, that miraculous incarnation. Following the revelation and her visit to her relative, Mary expresses this deep and heartfelt expression of worship to God when she says in what has become the known as the Magnificat. Luke 1 verse 46 says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. My question for you today is, how do we see this mercy of God in action. In order to explore this, I'd like to uh, look at a passage from the Old Testament and then the New Testament, where we can read of the way that God has expressed His mercy to humanity. So first of all, if you would, please turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 25. So that's the second book of the Bible. Go to Genesis, turn right, and you will get to Exodus. Book of Exodus, chapter 25, and I'm going to read from verse 10. Verse 10, and they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on it on its four feet, two rings on one side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings in the, on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony I shall give you. 
You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them. And on the two ends of the mercy seat, make one cherub on one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. And the cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces to one another, toward the mercy seat, shall the faces of the cherubim be. And you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I give you, that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in a commandment for the people of Israel. You're probably wondering, why am I reading an Old Testament passage about a golden box that is beautiful? Hopefully that'll be, that'll make sense in a moment. So Exodus is a Exodus is a book, it's, it's a book that records the history of the people of Israel escaping from slavery in Egypt, just to kind of give you some context, and their journey towards the land that had been promised to them by God. And the book also records the creation of this, the greatest agreement in history, the covenant between God and the people of Israel, the greatest document ever written in all of his, history, the Ten Commandments. We get that in chapter 20 of the book, the Ten Commandments. And it's in which God defines the basis of the relationship between men and himself, and also with each other. This incredible detail on how the people were to approach God, who is holy, and in this we see the tabernacle, or the tent of meeting. So we'll go to the next page, where we see this is, what the, this is an artist impression. These are ancient things, but these are artist impressions of, from the scripture, what it might have looked like. So you had the tabernacle there, the tent of meeting, which is the brown box at the back. And it, it, it's seen as the place, the, seated, the seat or the throne of, God, of, of Israel's divine king. His royalty was, uh, <clears throat> uh, his royalty, sorry, he's enthroned on the Ark of the Covenant in the innermost place. And we'll come to that, what is called the Holy of Holies. His royalty symbolized by the purple and the curtains and the divinity by the blue. I mean, read these passages. Oh, they're just so amazing. And yet there's further instruction as you see the progression of the valuable materials. So as you come in from the outer gate, which is on this side, you would have come, first of all, to the bronze altar. The bronze altar where all the sacrifices were given. And then you'd come to what's called the laver. The laver, a big bath where the priests would prepare themselves and wash. And only then could they go in that first tent, that first uh, veil of the tent, which was called the holy place. And there you would have a table of showbread. It's a table and it had bread on it. There would be a candlestick on the other side over against the table of showbread. And you'd have also have an altar which burned incense constantly. So the tabernacle itself, or rather the court, so you have the bronze altar as we've said. This is the sacrifices that and offered to God. And all these books in the Old Testament speak about these things. 
And the, the priests could not enter into the tabernacle or into the tent without the offering of the blood of sacrifice. And we'll expand on that later. So then, if we go to the next page, then when the priests were inside, and you can see that there's layers upon layer. I mean, read these passages, friends. The, 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 every layer has a meaning to it. Every layer was detailed out. Even, even the outer skins, badger skins, there's so much detail there. So when you get inside, you get into the tabernacle, coverings and the intricate detail and the symbolism. It speaks about the boards of the tabernacle, which were made of cedar, set into sockets of silver. These wonderful details of God's holy place. The table of showbread and the, and the candlestick and the altar of incense, all made with gold. But then you come to this, you can see there's a little curtain there in the middle. And that's the veil of the temple that guarded the Holy of Holies. That is where God was dwelling. But even the priests, the detail that you get later on in chapter 26 and 27 and so on of, of, of Exodus, the linen cloaks, the robes, the turban, the sash. There's an ephod, which is a richly embroidered apron-like cloak having two shoulder straps and ornamental attachments. And then there was a breastplate, like you get in the military sense, but there was a breastplate. And in that breastplate, there were 12 stones. Every one of the tribe of Israel was there remembered and held in the heart of the priest. It's like the Lord Jesus holding us on his heart. These are symbolic things. And we get the mysteri mysterious objects like the Urim and the Thummim. What's that all about? Nobody really knows. These are ancient things, but they all have symbol, symbolism. But we see that, but, but, but the, point and point, the important point is that we see the tabernacle, this Old Testament mysterious ritual that the, it was set out by God for the people of Israel. It was the forerunner of the temple we see built by Solomon in Chronicles. And when we come to the New Testament, of course, it's all superseded by Jesus, and we're going to come to that in a moment. So in chapter 24, we're instructed as to one of the most important objects in the, in the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant. This instruction comes immediately after in chapter 24, we see God confirming the covenant between himself and the people of Israel. And here we see, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, we see Moses and the elders going up, and then Moses alone going into the presence of God for 40 days and 40 nights. And from this incredible time in the presence of God, we get Moses sharing this detail. But more importantly, it's the detail of how God's relationship would work with the people. And it'll all make sense, hopefully, in due course. And so we look at some of the detail of the ark, where we see God giving the instructions where his mercy was to be known. The ark of the covenant, which is God's throne for he can meet with Moses specifically from the mercy seat. Thank you, Tracy. I forgot. <laughs> this is an artist impression, but, and, and nobody, nobody knows where it is, but that's a conversation for another day. An artist impression of what the ark looked like from the instructions we just read. A beautiful box, but the most sacred object that the Jewish people had at that time. And that ark, and that's the only thing that was placed into the most holy place, or what was called the Holy of Holies. It was never to be touched by human hands. That's why the poles had to remain on there, because that's where God 
would dwell. Some things to note, the acacia wood that is made of, quite durable wood, and it's very symbolic. The pure gold, the whole thing was overlaid with pure gold. The poles there to transport the ark. But the lid of the ark is what was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And we can consider the significance of this in the way it was constructed and the way it was used. Think about this. It was solid gold. It is the place where God was to speak to man. It was pure gold. The cherubim. These were usually associated with the guarding of holy places. If you, if you look back in Genesis, you see the cherubim at the Garden of Eden after man was banished. It was the cherubim there that protected that are protecting the Garden of Eden. But inside that box is the most important agreement that man has ever known, written by the finger of God himself, the Ten Commandments, inside that box. And we learn that it's the mercy seat, or this atonement cover, from and between the cherubim that God would speak with. In verse 22, God says this profound statement, there I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testament. God wanted to meet with the people. And in those days, he met with Moses, and Moses, being his prophet, would share with the people. These, these are powerfully significant things in the Scripture. And it's important that we, we touch them, we, we, we understand them. This is the place where there is the visible manifestation of God's glory. In years gone by, some would call that the Shekinah glory. Seen in the pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke by day, knowing that God's presence was there. These are powerful things. But the real significance of the Ark of the Covenant is what took place involving the lid of the box or this mercy seat. It comes from a Hebrew word meaning to cover or to placate, appease, cleanse, cancel, or make atonement for. It was there that the high priest, and only once per year, could enter. If you read Leviticus in chapter 16, you read this. They entered the holies where the ark was kept, and, and, and he would atone for the sins. He would sprinkle blood on seven times on the ark and seven times before it. All these rituals had symbolic meaning. But we'll come to something far greater in a moment. It's the only place where atonement for sin could be made. And so this is the mercy of God. He established a place where he could have relationship with men, where that atonement could happen, where his mercy could be displayed. But so why, why do we learn about these mysterious and ancient things? Because the mercy seat in the ark was the symbolic foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice for all sin, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross for remission of sins. It was looking forward to that. And it's a far more glorious way forward because of who it centers on, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. All of this has been changed. There's the need for the temple, the sacrifices, the rituals. Those are all gone because when we come to the Advent, we get the birth of the Lord Jesus that transformed the way by which we can approach God and have a relationship with Him. You see, if you read through the Scriptures, 
you see that the people of God sinned. And in Exodus 10, you read that God's glory departed from them. God's glory departed from them in Ezekiel chapter 10. Read it for yourself. But then we come to, and then you have these silent years, don't you? These silent years through Malachi. 400 years between Malachi and the beginning of Matthew's gospel, as we understand it. (laughs) But then we have the announcement of the angel to Mary. That Mary would have this baby conceived miraculously by the Holy Spirit, who would be called Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, there will be no end. Luke 1. Read Luke 1 for yourself. The introduction of Jesus. How wonderful. This child that was prophesied by Isaiah in chapter 7. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and call his name Emmanuel. God with us. This is Jesus introduced. And so it is by God himself coming to be with us that we learn of his mercy. And it is through Jesus, the Son of God, that that mercy is fully expressed. So now turn with me to the New Testament, or hopefully this will all start making sense, although I realize I've chosen probably a a fairly difficult passage. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. The letter to the Romans, I'm getting some nods that, yeah, difficult passage. Romans chapter 3, <laughs> Romans chapter 3, and we'll read from verse 21 to 26. Romans chapter 3, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth. Now here we get another word and we'll we'll study this in a moment. Whom God put forward as a propitiation. Some translations say a mercy seat. God put him forward as a propitiation or mercy seat by his blood. Propitiation is more accurate. To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Wow, what on earth does that all mean? (laughs) My goodness. But this is our blessing. And this is the answer to what we read in Exodus. God has come to meet you, friends. God has come to meet you in the person of Jesus, no longer a temple with a a sacred box in it. We have a person. We have the person of Jesus. So by way of background, the letter to Romans is Paul's treatise of the gospel, absolutely worthy of your reading. It gives you the good news of Jesus. The theme of Romans is the revelation of God's judgment, but also saving righteousness in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the cross of Christ, in the cross of Christ rather, that God judges sin and yet at the same time manifests his saving mercy. 
In the first two and a half chapters of the book, Paul outlines the fallen nature of mankind and exposes our rebellious hearts. And he reaches a conclusion that we read in verse 22 where it says, For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That involves all of us, every man, woman, and child in the world. We are born in sin. And throughout the course of the history, save for the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no one else. But the Lord Jesus was perfect. So we have hope. We have hope, friends. So in verse 21 of the chapter, we get this most important word, two words. I love these two words. But now. He's, he's, if you read, you could you know, read the first two chapters of Romans and you, you, you hold your hands in your head, or your head in your hands, rather. Um, but, but when you come to this, then there is hope, but now. And then he goes on to say, the righteousness of God manifested. You see, in verse 21, God himself is directly intervening into the course of human history. That's the wonder of the gospel, is that God himself does that. It's God's mercy. He directly intervened in the gloom and the darkness of the nature and condition of mankind. A new day has dawned, and it's purely God's mercy. God's righteousness and mercy have been fully manifested in Jesus, in his Son, the only begotten that we sang of at the beginning, Emmanuel, God with us. The writer to Hebrews in chapter 1 tells us this. He says, long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So he spoke to Moses, he spoke to the prophets in the Old Testament. But in the last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created. This introduction in Hebrews 1, along with John 1 and Colossians 1, are, one, are some of the most profound verses and statements of the deity and the glory of Jesus, through whom God has demonstrated his mercy. These are powerful scriptures, friends. But let's look at these verses. So, what, what does the righteousness of God manifested apart from the law mean? Well, it's God's initiative to bring saving mercy to mankind. It's God's righteousness. And he's acted without having to refer to the law, albeit the law is there. That is the Ten Commandments. He has moved of his own initiative to give the solution to the problem. God's initiative gives the solution to the problem and provides the basis on which we can have a relationship with him. The fulfillment of the promises of outlined in the Old Testament, it's, it's not an afterthought. That's why I read Exodus, because you want to get this insight that God wanted a relationship with men on a basis in which he could meet with them. The people of Israel failed. Sin was introduced in Genesis. But now he gives the answer in the New Testament in Jesus. He gives the solution. And then, of course, he goes on to say, through faith in Jesus Christ. There's no difference, we're all sinners, and there's only one answer, Jesus Christ. The gift of God whereby we are made righteous. What does that mean? That means that as we trust in Jesus, who is the perfect, um, who is God himself, become a man, who gave the perfect sacrifice on the cross, he shed his precious blood. When we trust in Jesus, we trust that that blood that was shed covered my sin. And then God looks on that and says, I am satisfied with that. I'm going to give you my righteousness. 
some will refer to that as imputed righteousness, but that's for another day. But he gives it to us. He gives us his righteousness because of what Jesus did on that cross. He shed his blood, a perfect sacrifice. Hebrews tells us no more sacrifices like we get back in Exodus because Jesus, his sacrifice was perfect. Because it's perfect, God is fully satisfied. If we trust in him, God is fully satisfied in us. As Cassie said this morning, we are accepted as we trust in that precious shed blood and the finished work of Jesus. So this is the righteousness of God was shown to us, manifested by by Jesus coming into the world. God's righteousness is, is shown to us. We receive righteousness as we have faith in Jesus. And then he goes on to say, justified by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Wow, this is theologically heavy. But my goodness, these are powerful words. So in the law courts, we learn that we can be pardoned. Now, if we've made a mistake, we can be pardoned. We can be relieved of the punishment that is due. But justification goes beyond that. Justification says that there's a clear declaration, a statement of fact that says there is no ground whatsoever for the infliction of punishment. Let me repeat that. There is a clear declaration, a clear statement that says uh, that we are justified, that there is no reason whatsoever that we should have punishment. For why? Because we've trusted in the work of Jesus. That's how powerful the work of Jesus is in the eyes of God. We trust in Jesus. We trust in that finished work. God says, I'm justified in saying, I will never punish you. That's justification. Redemption is, 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 so redemption refers to the marketplace. Or you can can use the analogy of a marketplace. And if you think about um, uh, some of the films, what was the one with Russell Crowe? Anyway, he's a slave. That's it, gladiator, thank you. <laughs> and, 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 and he was traded as a slave. Well, the, the, the whole power of redemption is that someone comes along and says, right, I'm going to buy that person's freedom. I'm going to pay the money so that they are no longer a slave. That's what redemption is. That's one example of it. And so because of the finished work of Jesus, we are redeemed. We've been bought out of slavery to sin. We, we, we are no longer bound by the power of sin that drags us down. We are set free from that. We are redeemed from it. Jesus paid the price. Jesus paid the price to redeem you and I from the power of sin. That's what redemption is. So you get these two theologically powerful concepts, justification. God saying, I, I see absolutely zero reason to give you punishment. But also Jesus paid the price to set me free. This is what's contained in these few verses. I've gone on longer than I intended on those sections. But anyway, so now we come to this this strange word, propitiation. So we go to this word and it says, and this is really what's on the heart of my mind because it links to what's there in in Exodus, this mercy seat. So the, the dictionary defines propitiation or the noun as an act of propitiating. It's conciliation, or the verb is that it's to be made favorable, favorably inclined, or to appease, or to conciliate. And it carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction, specifically towards God. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves the appeasing of the wrath, 
offended person and being reconciled. In this passage, Paul writes that it is God who has presented him as the offering for our sin. God has put him forward. If you read the words, it says, to whom God put, whom, so uh, through, um, justified by his grace as a gift through a Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. He put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So it's God in his action who satisfied his wrath or anger against sin. He has shown mercy. And so this is the answer to what we read in Exodus. God wanted a relationship. There had to be the mitigation of the sacrifices. This is the New Testament answer. Jesus came into the world, the Son of God. He fulfilled the will of God. He went to the cross. He died there, shed his precious blood, went into the grave. And it's for that reason that God can be, is, has been satisfied what Jesus did on the cross, having been betrayed and given up and been crucified, where he endured the wrath of God against sin during those three hours of darkness. You know, read those passages in the Gospels. They are powerful verses. He suffered for our sins and then gave up his life. That was the answer. God was satisfied. God was appeased. The wrath of righteous wrath of God and anger against sin was exhausted on Jesus on the cross. And because of that, as we place our faith and trust in him, we are reconciled. We can have a free relationship with God. My goodness, these are powerful words. These are powerful theological things. But I hope it's becoming a little bit clearer. God has been satisfied in the work of Jesus. Yes, and you know what? It's something that's been on my heart. And I hope and I, this comes across the right way. I love it when we can worship and give thanks to God for what he's done for us. But have we ever thought about what Jesus did for God? Have we ever thought about the fact that Jesus, in, and I say this with all reverence, in one sense, he didn't need any of us. In one sense, he didn't need any of us. He could have died there on the cross and satisfied God entirely. He didn't need us. But as we saw in John's gospel, because he loved us, he did it for us. But never forget, he did it for God first. God had to be satisfied. And that's propitiation. That's this act of conciliation. These are some big words, but I, I trust that it, it, there's a little bit of inkling of, and, and I trust I'm saying it the right things as well. So by his own action, God therefore presents Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement. Here's another word, atonement, at one moment. That means that we are reconciled with God. That means we're made one with God, not, not like God's, but rather we are reconciled to be in the presence of God, free and clear. Atonement, that's prices paid. We're no longer aliens, um, in, in a sense. We're no longer strangers to God. He demonstrates his justice. He right, rightly uh, judged sin and was doing so and because of his holiness. And yet, in his mercy, he provided the sacrifice of Jesus. Because of his entire action and his provision, he then has the right to forgive and justify, to declare clearly, as we've said, that there's no grounds for us to be condemned. Romans 12, again, referring to Paul. Read the beginning of Romans 12. Let's just do it. Romans 12 says this. Um, sorry, my mistake. 
Where is there, there is now then no condemnation. Sorry? Chapter 8, thank you. My, my apologies. Chapter 8 of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's justification. We're no longer condemned. Friends, as you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, you're free. There is no other condemnation. You are justified by God. You're free in God's presence because you've trusted Jesus. That's what it's all about. So it may seem strange, this idea of appeasement. Why, why are we speaking about this? You know, in Greek and pagan mythology, they used this idea of appeasement, and they would offer things, food, and sometimes children. Seriously, if you look at the references in Scripture, they would offer up their children to appease the gods. How horrific. But it's with God. He provided His own Son. We don't have to appease Him. He's done it Himself. He is satisfied in the work of Jesus. So that's the force of this word, propitiation. Hopefully that's piqued your interest a little bit. So Jesus' work has finished, finished work has satisfied God's righteous demand that sin should be punished. He's exhausted God's judgment against sin, and therefore anyone who places their trust in Jesus is declared righteous. Therefore, <clears throat> however, we, this must be re received in faith. You must claim it for yourself. You must turn to the Lord Jesus. As we've seen here recently with baptisms, they've claimed that the Lord Jesus was for them. And he died for them, and we praise God for it. So what does all of this mean? Where's the connection between the description of the tabernacle in Exodus and God putting Jesus forward as a propitiation? In the Old Testament, we see how God made himself known to mankind through the people of Israel and the tabernacle, which we saw in the pictures, where his presence was seen on the mercy seat and sat upon the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies. We saw the mercy, mercy seat sat on the ark, and it contained the two tables of stone, the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And they formed the basis of our relationship with him and our fellow men, but we can never meet those standards. But now, to use Paul's words, God now presents us with the person in whom he is providing the answer, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. God demonstrated his righteousness outside of any other rules or constraints, but purely in his design, divine sovereignty and mercy, he stepped into, this, into human history with Jesus and said, here's my answer. No longer a pillar of cloud by day or a pillar of fire by night where, we could approach, where men could only approach once a year and only with sacrifices of blood. He's entered directly into our world as that babe Emmanuel, Jesus. And we can have that relationship with Jesus. We can speak to him moment by moment. He is there. He's within us because of the Holy Spirit given. He has become a human and yet remained fully God, the mystery of the incarnation, so that we should know God directly and learn, as we learn during communion, Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. Isaiah 42 speaks, uh, speaking of the servant in whom God delights, he says in verse 21, the Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Jesus honored the law and he made it glorious when he was here. God was fully satisfied. If you, if you, read, you read in the Gospels or on the Mount of Transfiguration, this is my beloved son in whom I found my delight. That's the one who fulfilled the law and made it honorable. God was so delighted in Jesus and so should we be. And through Jesus, 
and his perfect obedience that the law was magnified and through his perfect sacrifice that God's been satisfied. So the Lord Jesus stood in between the righteous wrath of God and all his holy indignation against sin. And Jesus appeased that anger by his sacrifice on the cross. Through that perfect sacrifice and that shed blood, atonement has been made. God, we have been reconciled to God as we put our faith in that work. Jesus is between the righteous requirements of God and the wonder of what God has done uh, through him. God is speaking to us directly in Jesus, nothing holding back. So we, we saw that picture where there was the veil where, where the, the priest had to go in. And really interesting fact, when the priest had to go in, they had to have a rope. So in case they approached in an unholy manner, they could be struck down. They had to have a rope on their legs so they could be pulled out of there. <laughs> so if you read when the, the Lord Jesus died, there was an earthquake and the veil of the temple was rent. What does that mean? That the temple's wide open. There's nothing there, but what we do see is Jesus and all his majesty and all his glory and all his wonder. That's why we don't need that anymore, because we have Christ. We have the Lord Jesus. That's why I read the two sections, so you could see the distinction. So the efficacy of the work of Jesus was total on the cross. And 2 Corinthians 4 says this, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God on the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, read that passage for yourself. The glory of God is shining out through Jesus. And as we accept him, the glory of that shines in us too. We can be lights in this world. We, can be, we are forgiven, saved for eternity, free from condemnation. And so, as the passage we started with today says, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, and whosoever believes on him should not perish, but have life eternal. Friends, that's why we preach the saving power of Jesus week in and week out. That's why. Will you trust him? Will you rely on him for everything? Will you know the certainty of being forgiven? Know the certainty of having being righteous before God because of what Jesus has done as you trust in him. Let him do that to you today. Be your savior today. And so we're going to finish now with a classic hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. May God bless this word.